0: All right, we are in John. I'm uh, John James. One, verse nineteen. Now, this is a story. This is not a true story, but a story that I've told before. I know, but it's just such a good one. I tell it from time to time. Uh, a man who was a serious antique collector was in one of those little junk shops that they have dozens of in most big cities, and he was just kind of scanning the the place. You never know when you can find a hidden treasure. As he's walking along, he saw something he just couldn't believe his eyes. It was a a, a ceramic bowl that obviously was made in, in ancient China, priceless. And it was on the floor and a cat was eating it. And he thought, oh my goodness, this is the find of a lifetime. But he also knew if he acted too excited, the owner might jack up the price. And so he went up to him and he said, uh, listen, that is a really unique cat. It, it, it reminds me of the cat I had when I was a little boy and that cat meant the world to me. So I would be happy to give you $500 for that cat. The owner said, oh, I, I don't know. That, that cat's you know really special to my family. I don't think I could part, I couldn't face my kids if I sold it to the cat. And he said, well, let's just make it a thousand. How about that? And I said, well, I guess so. Yeah, I, I guess I guess with a thousand dollars, I can make it up to the kids. And so he said, "Okay, I'm going to pick him up and take him." But you know what? Just realized I don't have anything to feed him with. Uh, give you five bucks for that bowl. And the owner said, "Are you kidding me? That bowl's from the Ming Dynasty in China. There's no way I'm ever going to part with it." <laughs> but you know, funny thing is, ever since I acquired it, I've sold two dozen cats. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Now you see why I tell that story a lot. The point is that some people don't know they have a treasure when they have it, and the word of God is a treasure that Christians, by and large, take for granted. Uh, I love sometimes to read stories of the the route by which we got our English language Bibles. I don't think most Christians realize how hard it was, how many centuries it took before there was just a Bible in the language of common people, any any language. And, And then for it to get into the English language, how many people, literally people, were martyred because they dared to translate the scriptures into the English language. And yet you and I, have Bibles by the dozens anywhere we want them. We can get it for free on our smartphones, or, or you know the the uh, Gideons are, are good enough to hand them out wherever they wherever they're allowed, and and so the Scriptures are just abundantly free, and we treat it like a coffee book table and rarely open it. Maybe maybe we bring it to church, although that's less and less as well. So how do we make sure as Christians that the treasure of the Word is fully realized in us. I think that's what James is talking about in this next passage, starting with verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Now, you could take those first two verses out of context and just say, well, they have nothing to do with the word of God. And yet, this is why it's so important to read the word of God in context. When James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, those are good principles, period. But you realize he's talking about preparing your heart to hear and not miss What the word of God says. Think about it. We need to hear the word with a prepared heart. If you were going to a talk given by the world's greatest expert in finance, would you bring a notepad? Would you bring a pen so you could jot things down? Would you be that prepared? If, if your boss, the boss of your company said, I'm going to tell you the future of our company for the next three years, would you come with some questions ready? Would you make sure you were there on time? Would you make sure you had gotten enough sleep the night before so you could hear everything he said? Of course. So we should be prepared when we open the word of God. We should not open it casually. We should treat it like more than just another book. So in verse 19, those are really three things we can do to remove impediments that keep us from hearing the word of God. To prepare our hearts. First of all, he says, be quick to hear, to listen, be ready to hear the word of God. And he's talking, I think, specifically here about when the word is preached or when it is shared in a Bible study form or just someone reading it out loud. Now, that doesn't mean, I hope you know me by now well enough to know what I believe about this. There is no human preacher on earth who is always right. Don't tell my family I said that. Every preacher is wrong about something. And so you should not uncritically listen to anybody Instead, as John says in his first uh, epistle, test the spirits, test what a a man of God says, Uh, test what a woman of God says, if a woman happens to be your Bible teacher. But make sure you know that what they are saying agrees with the word of God, that they are not straying off into, well, this is my opinion, but I'm going to treat it like the word of God or, or, you know, the word of God goes this far, but I'm going to go even further that those are dangers that we need to avoid. So yes, we should be critical listeners, but we have to be listeners. We have to be willing to learn new things. Every time the word is taught, every time the word is taught, there's a chance your life could change forever. I bet many of you could, could give testimony tonight if, if you had the opportunity of a sermon or a Bible study that changed your life in some profound way. And that can happen anytime the word of God is taught. So be prepared, be ready for that, I've got a story about that. Um, I, I don't remember the preacher's name, but I just remember this from my Baptist history class in seminary. There was a a man in the in England in the long ago days, post Reformation. Uh, he was he was the son of some famous Baptist preacher. I wish I knew more details. I just remember this. He was because he was the son of a Baptist preacher that was famous. A church called him to be their pastor, and he said, oh, "Okay." Sure. And he went and he started preparing messages. And one Sunday, as he was preaching the message he had prepared, the word of God convicted him so profoundly that he fainted in the pulpit. And when they revived him, he said, I was never a Christian until now. Now, I'm a, now I trust in Christ as my savior. He was literally converted by his own preaching. I think that's pretty remarkable. So every time the word is preached or taught, your life could change forever. Second impediment to remove: be slow to speak. And I don't need to say much about this except to say, a know-it-all who loves to hear himself talk will never learn anything. So guard yourself. Those of you who are highly opinionated ought to know that about yourself and understand there comes a time where I need to just stop and listen instead of always having to be the one who speaks, always having to be the one who is right. The third thing he says is be slow to anger. Now that's that's a good piece of advice in general, all of these are, but in the context of learning from the scriptures, what does it mean? It means uh, we tend to get offended when our toes are stepped on. One of the blessings that I have as a pastor is that this is a church that tends to like it when I or your Bible teachers in life group teach messages that, that lead you to life change, but not all Christians are like that. Some Christians love it when you talk about the sins of others, but not about theirs. And, you know, I, I hope to be pastor here a long time from now. So there's plenty of opportunity for me to make you mad, too. The point is, the point is, if the word of God being taught makes you angry, you need to ask yourself, why am I angry? Am I angry because that teacher, or that preacher went beyond what the word says? Were they abusive? Were they they teaching their own opinion as the word? Or do I just not like the way they applied the word to an area of my life that I don't want to change? Be slow to become angry. You have to be coachable. In verse 20, as he goes on and says, uh, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's one of those verses that I think every Christian ought to have memorized. I, I'm it's sad to say um, I've known people who who they said about who their friends would say, boy, he is such a good man, but he's got a sharp temper. And you want to say, well, hang on. Is he a good man? If if he can't control his temper, if if his wife and kids kind of quake around him whenever he's in a bad mood, when if if you know he's not you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat a waiter, especially a waiter who's not very good. You know, if if, if he can't hold his temper, is he really a good man? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21, uh, when he says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. I just have to share this. Uh, the King James Version. The King James says, instead of rampant wickedness, it says the superfluity of naughtiness, which I just love that phrase. And I grew up in a King James preaching church. I... I know I would have noticed that if they read that. So we must never have heard a sermon on James 1.21. That would have made me laugh. The superfluity of naughtiness. That's, yeah, that's a great phrase. Okay, put that away. When he says, put away all filthiness, it's the same expression that would be used for taking off a garment. So picture, you've been outside, you've been working in the yard, and you are a filthy mess. And you come inside... And you say, I'm not getting any of this mess on my house. I'm just stripping off this garment right here in the breezeway or the entryway or the mudroom or whatever the case may be. That's what it's talking about. Put away these things. Put away uh, all this stuff that the word of God points out in my life. He's going to talk in a minute about the foolishness of not applying the word to your life. This is the positive angle of it. Take all that filth off and you'll be so free and so pure. Um, He says, the word that is planted in you. I love that. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word because it pictures the Bible as a seed. And you know, the thing about seeds is when you plant them, they don't stay seeds. They grow into something else. And when the word of God gets down into your heart, it bears fruit that's that's the that's the beautiful thing about it you can't really say that about any other book there are certainly books that can influence you that can inspire you that can teach you amazing things but there is no book on earth that can change a life like the word of god so let it be implanted in you and then the then finally we'll move on he says the implanted word which is able to save your soul Yeah, let's get it straight The Bible literally doesn't save anybody. It's the blood of Christ. It's the shed blood of Christ on the cross. It's the grace of God. But the the word of God is a means or or a vessel through which we come to know that salvation. And, and, And keep in mind also, I don't think it simply means that the Bible is how we hear the gospel and therefore it's how we first come to Christ. This is something, again, that we Baptists don't emphasize often enough. Salvation is not just escaping the possibility of hell. Salvation is, we are not just saved from the eternal consequences of our sins. We're saved from our sins, period. We're saved from the bad decisions we might have made if we hadn't followed Christ. We're saved from uh, the the ways we would have hurt others if we hadn't given our hearts and, and minds over to Christ. We're saved from backsliding. And going back down the awful road we once tread, we once trod. Uh, we're saved from making mistakes and committing sins that disqualify us from future ministry and usefulness. There, there's so much that salvation cures us from. And so when you study the Word of God, you're, you're working out that salvation. You're saying, Oh, okay, because I'm following the Holy Spirit. The Spirit just showed me through the Word of God. I need to stop. I need to work on this habit that's, that's hurting my family. I need to, I need to avoid this, uh, this place that, that is not a good influence on me. I need, to, I need to make this decision that will put me back into the will of God. So, yeah, the word of God is able to save your souls. So, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Keep in mind, nowhere in the Bible are we commended are commanded to just know God's word. We're always commanded to obey God's word. I mean, even in the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, What's the subject of Psalm 119? How amazing the law of the Lord is. And when you read it, it's not just David saying, boy, I sure love studying your word, although he does say that. Oh, I I love memorizing your word, he does say that, but he also says, I love obeying your word. So we're never, the the idea that we should just, that, that Bible study is a purely intellectual exercise, that having Bible knowledge on its own is commendable, is nowhere found in the scriptures. If you can, if you can beat, uh, most people in Bible trivia, good for you. But that in on itself is useless until it sinks into your, into your heart, until it gets applied to your life. Be doers and not hearers only. Some have called verse 22 the theme verse of the whole book of James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And, and it just, it ought to frustrate us that we spend so much time in evangelical churches like this one, studying God's word, but we don't spend sufficient time mentoring people, helping people learn how to obey God's word and discipling them, teaching them really how to follow it. And I, I, I'm talking to myself because I love teaching it uh, a whole lot. And I find that easier to do then I find it to go and confront my brother and say, you're not living this. But it takes both of those. That's, that's what a church should be. Um, that his his uh, analogy of the person who looks at himself in a mirror, that might be a little hard for you to wrap your mind around. Think about it this way. Imagine tomorrow before you go out, you look in the mirror and you've got a piece of spinach stuck right between your front teeth. Or you've got a cowlick in the back of your hair that's sticking straight up. And you go, oh my gosh, I got to do something about that. And then you turn and immediately forget what you've seen. And you go on out anyway. Well, it did you no good to look in the mirror, right? You might as well not have a mirror if you're going to forget what you saw. That's the point he's making here, that the word of God, in a sense, is the mirror that God used to show you what's really going on in your life. And sometimes that's painful. Sometimes you, you see parts of yourself that you don't want to see in that mirror, and, and yet you need to do something about it. It's kind of a... You don't think of the scriptures as being satirical, but it, this is a satirical way of saying, this is how foolish it is to study God's word, but not live it out. You're like a person who forgets what they see in a mirror. Uh, you know, they, they come walking up and their hair is standing straight up and you say, don't you own a mirror? Well, yeah, I do. Well, apparently not. And he goes on in verse 25 and says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, think about that phrase, the law of liberty. How can a law be a source of liberty? Well, because it frees us from the terrible consequences of sin. When he looks in the law, uh, into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So there's a fourfold, you could make a sermon out of verse 25. Okay, here's your four points. Very quickly. uh, Look intently at the word of God. That's point one. That means... You don't rush through your Bible reading. I'm, I'm a big proponent of reading through the Bible every year. That, that works for me. For others, that's not a good habit at all. You, you end up doing it and it doesn't benefit you at all because you're just, you're just using it as a chore, right? Because you got to read your three or four chapters. And so you're reading as quickly as you can to get it done so you can check off that box. You need to know yourself well enough. Is it good for me to read a chapter? Is it good for me to read a handful of verses? Is it good for me to read three or four verses? or three or four chapters. But the point is, as long as you're able to slow down and look intently into the Word of God, not just read it the way you brush your teeth or the way you take out your garbage. Uh, So look intently at it. Point number two, he who perseveres. What does it mean to persevere in the Word of God? I think it means to, to meditate upon it. Having read it, to sit down, to really sit with it. You know what scripture meditation is? Now, Now we hear meditation... And unfortunately, since the 1960s, at least in this country, the word meditation is thought to be the Eastern form of meditation, you know, influenced by Buddhism and Hinduism. You know, the Beatles were big into that back in the 60s. And ever since then, oh, yeah, you get your mantra and you repeat it and, and you can go into an altered state and, oh, it's so good for you, et cetera. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is not about emptying your mind. It's about filling your mind with the word of God. And the best way I can describe it is it's when you find a truth in scripture or a story or an insight or a command and you think that's really good. I'm going to sit with that for a while. And and it can be memorizing it. It can be uh, it can be puzzling it out. But if you're taking time with a truth in scripture and, and you're coming to the point where you say, what would my life look like? If I acted this verse out, that's meditation. That's the best way I can describe it. When you sit down with a a verse of scripture or a truth in scripture, and at the end of it, you say, okay, this is what it would look like. If I began to live this out, then that is a life-changing thing. The third point in that four-point sermon in verse 25 is don't forget it. Don't forget the word of God. For me, journaling is the tool that helps me with this. Because I'll be honest with you, if I don't write down what I learned, it's not even noon before I've forgotten. And I've learned that at the end of the day, it's really helpful if I go back to my journal before I go to bed and say, okay, what did I read this morning? Oh yeah, this morning I read, etc. That That helps implant the word of God in my life. Don't forget it. Man, you and I both know you've got so many things coming in, coming at you. All throughout the day, you, you need to record God's word in some way or it's going to flee from your mind and you'll forget it. And then, fourth, doing it. So, looking intently, persevering, not forgetting it, and doing it. If you do the word of God, you will be blessed. So, here's your question, and then we move on to the last three verses, or last two verses in our passage. When is the last time that your life was changed by an encounter with God's word? As a Christian, that's something that ought to be happening in your life on a semi-regular basis. I'm not saying that every day you read the Bible, there's going to be this big aha moment, but there should be things you can point to. Whether you've been a Christian for five months or 50 years, you should still be learning. You should still be growing. All right, so verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, what's he doing here? I think he's still talking about the word of God. Because remember, James is coming out of a, a Jewish context. Judaism, just like Christianity, both very word-based religions. It's all about the book. It's not about your experience. We don't... We don't. Uh, get up uh, this there's a reason why i don't get up and just talk about what happened on the news this week or tell you about a funny dream i had i i get up and preach the word of god uh the the rabbis in judaism were and, and most still are the same way so when he's talking about being religious he's talking about being a person of the word and james is saying so if you claim to be religious in other words you claim to be someone who is a man or woman of the book who obeys god's commands this is what true religion looks like all right so again let's go back to verse 26 if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless james is showing us what real biblical religion looks like and the first aspect of it is that you guard your words that the words of your mouth point to your devotion to christ Uh, that's going to be a major emphasis of chapter three when we get there. But for now, let me just remind you that Jesus, brother of James said out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks Luke 6 45. You want to know what's really in a person's heart? Listen to the words they say, or this is even more convicting. You will be judged. Jesus said in Matthew 12 36 by every careless word you speak. On the day of judgment, you will give an account for every careless word you speak. That ought to strike fear into the heart of every single person in this room. Because we all speak carelessly sometimes, and some of us more than others. So your words matter. I would put it this way. No matter what you claim to believe, the way you speak reveals what you really believe. If you are doctrinally correct right down the line, and you know... The, the main theme of every, you know, all 66 books of the scriptures, that's great. But if you gossip or if you speak hatefully about unbelievers or if you're a constant complainer, what do you really believe about God? You don't actually believe that God loves all people if you're willing to speak that way about people who don't believe like you do. You you don't really believe that God wants you to love your neighbor if you're willing to gossip about her behind her back. You don't really believe that God knows what he's doing if you're constantly complaining. So your words reveal what you truly believe. That's the first thing about true religion. It it comes out in the words we speak. Secondly, it comes out in being compassionate. Verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, I preached on this a few weeks ago, so I won't spend a lot of time here, except to say, you go through the scriptures and it is obvious that God judges us based on how we treat those who we don't have to be nice to. So the people who, there's no social reward for being nice to them because they don't have any clout, because they don't have any money. The way we treat them reveals whether we're really converted or not, whether we're really followers of Jesus. Because let's face it, everybody is kind to the people who can benefit them. Everybody loves certain people in their family, perhaps, uh, certain friends who are a blessing to them, people who can advance them in their careers, people who are higher up the social ladder so you want to impress them. everybody is that way. But the true sign of of a converted heart is when there's that, as as the Old Testament would say, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, which is just shorthand for the people who don't have anybody else who stands up for them. Anybody who chooses to love on those folks. Well, that's a revelation that you're really a believer in Jesus, especially if you do it without blowing the trumpet in the streets and say, look how what a good person I am. You just go out of your way to help. So that's true and and, and, uh, undefiled religion. And then finally, it's to keep oneself unstained from the world. And again, I preached on this a few weeks ago, and and we talked about how the Bible uses the term the world, same word, in two different ways. And you have to look at the context to know what he's talking about. For instance, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves the world enough, to die for it. And yet, you go to 1 John, and he says, if anyone is a friend of the world, he's an enemy of God. And you think, well, how can those two concepts come together? God loves the world, but we can't be a friend of the world? Well, he's using the word world in two different ways. In the first instance, when he says God loves the world, he's talking about the people who live here. He's talking about all of humanity. But in the second instance, he's talking about something other than human beings. He's talking about the the prevailing attitude of this world. He's talking about uh, the, the concepts that guide our decisions. Again, when he talks about the world, he's not talking about people. So don't think that uh, God in saying, don't be a friend of the world means that you should reject people who aren't believers, that there's something holy in rejecting people who aren't Christians. That's not the case. The world in that, in that, in that instance means a certain mindset. It's greed, it's covetousness, it's, uh, it's lust. It's all the things that pull us away from trusting in God and following and obeying Him. It's all the things that, that shout, this is what it means to live the good life when, when God says, no, the good life is over here. So when we think about separating from the world, I mean, if you've grown up in church, especially in an evangelical church, you've heard this your whole life. Don't watch those movies. Don't listen to that music. Don't hang around with those kids, right? And it's all about the the kinds of things we put into our minds, the kind of entertainments we enjoy. And yes, there are certainly uh, there are there are way there are things we should avoid, right? I, I would agree with that. There are there are entertainments that are no good for us, but that's only a, a sliver of what it means to keep yourself unstained from the world. So so, for instance, what about what about your attitude? toward money and possessions? Are you more influenced by God's word or by the world? I know I shared this with you, but some years ago I was driving down uh, Longmire and there was a new neighborhood coming in. And they had a billboard up that said, come enjoy life more abundant. And I almost drove off the road. I'm like, do you know you're just, you're using God's term? You know, it might be a fine neighborhood to live in. I hope it is, but you're not going to have abundant life just by living there. So the world says, and I don't mean to pick on this particular real estate developer, whoever they are, but the world says, this is how you become happy. And God says, no, that's not how you become happy. If I give you the resources to afford a certain kind of house, maybe that's okay. That's that's between you and the Lord, but that's not going to make you happy. Only Only God can do that. So, again, let me ask you, when you make decisions about your finances, when you make decisions about how you dress, when you make decisions about your relationships, your future, are you being influenced by the world and saying, this is what success looks like? This is the only way I can be happy. Or are you being influenced by the word of God? What is the the stronger influence? Because I'll tell you, there's probably and I don't get to be the judge of this, thank God, but there's probably a whole lot of Christians who would never dare to watch a rated R movie or listen to any music that's that's in any way, any way uh, demeaning to, to the Lord or, 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 or disgraceful, and yet they will let the world tell them how much they should spend on their home and on their car and what brand of clothes they should wear, and they won't think a thing about it. Are they being unstained from the world? No, of course not, because they're, they're using their resources in a way that is, that is not glorifying God because they're trying to find happiness apart from him. So you notice, I'm not saying if you have a house that's worth this much, it's okay. But any more than that, it's not because then you get into legalism. right. I don't get to make that call. I'm just saying every Christian has to ask themselves, what is motivating my decision-making here? So, need to stop before I get into real trouble. So I don't know, if, like like most stories about Mark Twain, I don't know if this one is true, but I heard it, that after Twain went to the Holy Land, I know that happened. He wrote about it in one of his books. He came back and he was at a dinner party. And there was a, a wealthy man there, may have been a pastor, I don't know, who heard him, heard him talk about going to Israel. He said, oh, I want to go to Israel so badly, this preacher did. And He said, you know, if I ever get to go there, I'm going to climb to the very, very top of Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in the whole land, and I'm going to shout out the Ten Commandments from memory. And Mark Twain, who was no uh, fan of religion, said, "Uh, wouldn't it be better to stay here and keep them? And sometimes, even with a skeptic like him, you have to say amen. Amen. The wonderful thing about God's word is that a Christian or a church, either one, who is constantly hearing the word of God and applying the word of God to his or her life or to their lives is in a constant state of revival. They never stop growing. They never stop changing. They never stop experiencing new life. And I think that comes back to what Paul talks about, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And it's because of two things, because of the Holy Spirit and God's word that you know, you know that as long as you live, you may get to the point where you can't do some of the things you used to be able to do. You may get to the point where you can't walk, you can't uh, even breathe well, but as long as you've got the ability to hear God's word and apply it to your life, inwardly you're growing. Inwardly, you're being renewed day by day, and that is very, very good news. That is how revival happens. That's how life happens. It is the word implanted in your souls that can save your very soul. So, I know that's kind of preaching to the choir because y'all are here on a Wednesday night just to hear the word of God, but it ought to be a good encouragement for you. And I'm going to pray for us now and, and bless you with a good week. Heavenly Father, we pray, thanking you for your word and thank you, Lord, for. Uh, the men and women in the past who helped get it to us. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom we have in our country and culture to read it and proclaim it anywhere, anytime. I pray that we would not waste the opportunity. Heavenly Father, I pray that I would be a faithful teacher of the word of God. I thank you, Lord, for the many men and women in this church who are teachers of your word. Pray that they would do it faithfully. For those who are discouraged right now in that, I pray that they would see that they are doing your work. And would have new, uh, renewed, a renewed sense of calling to that ministry. Lord, help us to hear it and do it. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.